0: Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. Amazon had an experimental hiring tool that taught itself that male candidates were preferable and penalized resumes that included the words women's and downgraded graduates of two or women's colleges. This is the press box. Meanwhile, another company discovered that its hiring algorithm had found two factors to be
1: most indicative of job performance.
0: With Graney and Bischoff.
1: If an applicant's name was Jared... And whether
0: they played high school lacrosse on ESPN, Las Vegas.
2: All right, here we go. Oh man, are That's
1: we loud. on the air?
2: That's loud. <laughs> it's loud in my ears.
1: <laughs> I turned your headphones down. Did you? Yes. Oh, there you go. Now I can't hear you. I oh, can't wait. hear anything. Turn that up. There. What about there? What about That's there? Great. All right. That's great. That's we great. we're in a, a <laughs> <Closet>. secondary <laughs> studio. Uh, they are redoing our regular studio. I don't know if we're, we're on the air. air no.
2: <laughs> Tweet us if we're not. We might not if be. No.
1: Uh, so far, Jared's headphones have uh, not worked. Jared also doesn't have a chair. <laughs> I don't even. Does Jared have a mic? He's got a mic. I, okay.
2: Wait. I can't hear myself. But I'm I can't hear levels. You. <laughs> I can't hear through my mic. Or through my earphones.
1: Jared has a mic, but it's okay. not nope. on. Or doesn't work. One of the two. Might be better for the show if Jared doesn't have a mic. You can just yell and our mics will pick it up from the background. So This is going to be good. We're going to be here for like two or three weeks, too. Oh, I think longer. Longer. Oh, yeah. They're remodeling our studio. Get get in and get out. I think a month. Oh, boy. I'm
2: I'm putting the number at a month over under two to three weeks is always very, very optimistic.
1: All right. I'm optimistic. And I just got a text message that says, you on the air from one of our bosses, Jared. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. One of our bosses just said, "You on the air?" I think he's confirming that we're on the yeah, air. All right, okay, all right, all right. cool. Thanks, cool. thanks, Doug. We appreciate thanks, it. Appreciate it, Dougie. Let's talk about the Golden Knights. Yeah,
2: let's go. Out the <gasps> channel not configured. The first bite. The first bite. <laughs> Will the Golden Knights have a successful trade deadline? I don't think my mic
1: works. That's fine. That's fine. We'll pick it up in the Ebon. background. Golden Golden Knights traded for Ivan Barbashev. They sent a former first-round pick, Zach Dean, to the St. Louis Blues. So Barbashev, he is uh, 27 years old. He can play all three positions, all three forward positions, center or both wings. Uh, 59 games this year with the Blues, 10 goals, 19 assists. Last year, he had a career-high 26 goals, but that is a massive outlier if you look at his career totals. He is a rental. He is a free agent after this season. They could re-sign him. Cap, it's only $2.25 million.
2: So is this one of those uh, depth forwards you would have rather seen them sign instead of one of the big names?
1: As long as they do something else. Oh, if okay. they're only gonna acquire one player, then no. Then you go get Patrick Kane or Timo Meyer. But as long as they acquire somebody else, yes, this is the type of player, the depth player that you go get because you can conceivably add two or three of With them the that make your team better right. as opposed to one Patrick right. Kane. If we get to Friday afternoon and the this trade deadline's the gone end. and it's only Barbashev, then no, you Maybe should you, like. you should have gotten Patrick sure. Kane. I right, granted Patrick Kane would have had to agree to come here, but you should have gotten somebody that costs more Wipe money. That thing around. So hey, that worked, Jared. There you go. So as long oh, as yeah. there's more, absolutely. Now, I a couple of questions that I have on Ivan Barbashev. First off, is is where is he going to play? Because he can play center, but the Golden Knights when healthy, Nick Wah is not healthy right now. But the Golden Knights, when healthy, they they've probably got four centers that are better than Barbashev. Right, Eichel, Carlson, Stevenson, and Nick Waugh are probably all four better than Barbashev. So when healthy, I don't think he's playing center, which means he's playing wing. And is this somebody you bring in to play with Eichel? Is he better than Paul Cotter? Is it somebody you bring in to play with Carlson and Smith right now because they've got Amadio. Michael Amadio? or is it just somebody that's going to be on the third and fourth lines over the course of the season and that's the depth type of player they were trying to add. I'm curious to see where Bruce Cassidy uses Ivan Barbashev, who by the way is expected to be in the lineup tonight, so we'll yeah, get an he's answer. Going to be tonight. We'll get an answer pretty soon as to where he's actually going to play. Yeah.
2: I'm looking right at it on the, off the top of my head and Was hurt so that might mean an easy decision for him. Uh but maybe just a bottom 6-4 bottom 6 wing.
1: Yeah can just play six wing anywhere you need him to and yeah. and the, I think part of the key with his versatility is we've seen Bruce Cassidy change his lines a lot when the Golden Knights aren't winning and if Barbashev truly can play both wings and the center position it gives you a lot of flexibility as a coach you can change lines on the fly you can do it before games and you can put Barbashev conceivably in any spot but here's the other question, because I don't want to sit here and pretend like I've seen Ivan Barbashev and, and have some great scouting report on who oh, Ivan come Barbashev on, is. Oh, you're in the media. But almost everybody that I follow that does like hockey analytics, Ivan Barbashev is one of the worst defensive players in the NHL. Right. Dom LeCision, his analytics says he's uh, in the bottom 8th percentile. Uh, Jay Fresh Hockey has him in the bottom four percentile when he, when he's on the ice for st louis they give up more expected goals more shots more high danger chances all of the analytics we like to track on a permanent basis than pretty much every other st louis blue and that's what i'm fascinated to see is he bad defensively because bruce cassidy well, benches guys who are bad yeah, defensively
2: that's the one thing he doesn't put up with right Is you can't, you have to play the system, you have to be good defensively, and if you don't, you're out of the game. Yeah. So you're not, you're not in the lineup.
1: Maybe there's, you know, maybe playing under Bruce Cassidy or playing in Vegas is different from St. Louis and he's better because of a different scheme or different structure or different line mates. I know Dom LeCision wrote about his usage. He has one of, uh, on a nightly basis, some of the toughest matchups in the NHL. Like he generally gets put out there against the other team's better lines. So that should change when he's in Vegas, obviously, unless he's thrown out especially, there with Eichel. Yeah, but
2: especially if he's in the third and
1: fourth yeah. line. Yeah. So that should help, too, conceivably. But I do think it's fair to question Did the Golden Knights trade for a guy that's going to be bad defensively. And if so... What does that mean for him? Right. Is Cassidy actually going to use him? Because you know Phil Kessel, not, not as much recently because they've been playing really well in that line, but Phil Kessel early in the season, we talked about it, was not Terrible playing in third periods. Yeah. Bruce Cassidy yeah. was not playing him in the third play. periods. We've seen that with other guys, too. We just saw it with Paul Cotter in yeah. the last game. He took, what was it, two shifts or something like that in the third period. We've seen Cassidy, if somebody's not good enough and usually good enough defensively, they don't play in the third period of games when it's close, when they're chasing, when they're uh, protecting a league. Right. So that's what I'm curious to see. Is Cassidy going to be able to play him? Is he truly that bad defensively? Because if that plays out, it kind of reminded me of the Tomas Tatar trade no, all the way that. back Did in year one. one. So <laughs> the fascinating part about the Tomas Tatar trade is the front office went out and got Tomas Tatar, who was a regular... <laughs> 20 goal scorer. Right. <laughs> and he's been a 20 goal scorer. Tomas Tatar is good at scoring, but Gerard Gallant didn't like him. Gerard Gallant no, didn't did like the way like he played. Him. No. And it led to a guy the Golden Knights traded a first, second, and third round pick at the deadline for getting healthy scratched in the postseason because the coach didn't like the way yep. he played. Now, was that a mistake on Gerard Gallant's part? Maybe. But I do wonder how much input or at least how much of a conversation there was with Bruce Cassidy about bringing on Barbashev. Like, did Bruce Cassidy say, I absolutely love this guy, or did they just say, hey, we got you another piece, make it work? I
2: think it's going to be the latter. I think it's going to be the latter.
1: And they'd be repeating a mistake they yes. made five, six years ago. This guy is this is, bad is defensively? Is this bad defensively, and right.
2: Cassidy doesn't like him? Right. I think it's the latter. Because if Cassidy knew anything about him and his analytics defensively, I can't believe he was on board completely for this because right. that's not the kind of player that he has shown, at least this year, to like.
1: Right, unless Cassidy's like, ah, the Blues were well, using him in this him role, play. and I'm right. going to use him in this role, right. and he'll be just fine. We'll see. But I, I am curious, you know, get us two months into the future. What if does Barbashev's, period, <laughs> right? He's what he's does Barbashev's all. minutes look like? Because if, massive if... If the Golden Knights are healthy in the postseason, if Mark Stone comes back, is Barbashev con- uh, considerably better than you know Paul Cotter? Is he considerably Michael better Amadio? than Amadio? Because those are the guys he's going to have to bump out of the lineup right. if the Golden Knights are fully healthy, including Mark Stone. If Stone never comes back, then you know Cotter's on like the first line or something, and you're de- you're battling and with Barbashev's Brett Howden. probably
2: trying to still get minutes on right. the third and fourth line.
1: So I'm curious to see there. The other part of this. Golden Knights gave a former first round pick in Zach D used well, their twenty twenty one. That doesn't matter. He's
2: a first round pick. Why keep him? They don't like first round. They don't like they, first round picks. They
1: only have one of all of the first round picks they have ever had. They have one left. They have one left. It's Brendan Brisson who they took in the twenty twenty draft. They've trade they've either traded the pick outright or they've traded the guy they've taken with the pick, with their right, first round right. pick on every other one. And my big question for the Golden Knights how long is that sustainable? When does that catch up to them? Where you trade away all of your first round picks, all of your high end prospects, when does that catch I mean, up? I mean, I don't think
2: they would I don't think they would care if they make the deep run and try to win a cup and get win a cup, then they'd look back and say, We don't care about the number one picks. We won the cup.
1: Right. I mean,
2: now if they don't and they're out in the first round and, you know, for two, three straight years and they're not getting these guys who were first round picks to have developed and be on the team, then they're gonna look back and say we might have screwed up.
1: Which is what has happened the first five years yeah. of this franchise. So one missed playoff appearance, but otherwise they've had some decent runs in the postseason, made the conference finals three times. And But it, if that continues to happen, if they make the conference finals this year and next year they're out in the first round and then it suddenly it catches up to them, do you look back and say, oh, seven years, six playoff appearances, a few conference finals, but didn't win the cup and say yeah, it was worth it? Or do you have to win the cup for it to be worth it if, they're gonna, if it's going to catch up to them at some point?
2: I think you probably have to win the Cup.
1: I think so, too. And it's it's going to catch up at some point. Actually, I'd make the argument it already has caught up with them because why did the Golden Knights not get Timo Meyer? Timo Meyer is going to New Jersey. The Golden Knights were no. the second team in on Timo Meier.
2: Maybe they didn't have the uh, capital, but San Jose probably asked for a lot more than they did New Jersey <laughs> to send
1: him to the Golden Knights. <laughs> the Golden Knights don't really have the prospects to acquire... Timo Meyer, right? Conceivably, they could have traded out a whole bunch of draft picks, but they don't have the prospects to acquire the big name at the deadline or if somebody's available in the offseason. And so in a way, it already has caught up with them where they again, they traded one of their top five prospects who's a former first round pick for a rental bottom six forward, right? That's not very good. If, that, if Ivan Barbashev if, plays if, two like months you here... Said
2: he's the only one they do.
1: Well, no, I'm saying just you gave up a top-five prospect and you might only get two months of a third-line forward? That's not very good. Now, it also speaks to how bad the Golden Knights prospect pool is because their top-five is not the same as somebody else's top-five. But if Barbashev... You get two months of a guy playing on the third line who might score four goals for you the rest of the season and you gave up one of your top-five prospects? That's brutal. Yeah. Like, it's not very good. So... I think it's already caught up to them, and I'm curious how long they'll be able to sustain this level of success. All right, coming up next, hopefully we're going to have a guest. Jared doesn't seem too confident we'll have a guest on the phone. Your mic doesn't work. Does, does your mic work? I don't think, I don't, mic think works. Your mic no, works I don't think your mic works either. It's working. I can't hear you. Hopefully, Evan Drellich joins us next. <laughs>
0: Steve Co- Grant slides through, finds a Little back to Dame. Jab, step two to shoot deep three, buries in a desperation three. Beats the shot clock. 19 for Dame. Dame crosses, dribbles, kicks to the corner. Reddish now to Watford. Ball fake back to Dame. Three on the way. Yes! 36 and a half for Damian Lillard. His seventh three of the night. From the logo. Yes! Logo Lillard at his finest. 39 and a half for Damian Lillard. Text Granny and Bischoff at 69187 with the word ESPN.
1: We do not have Evan Drellich just yet. Hopefully, we get a hold of Evan Drellich. In the meantime, did you watch any of Damian Lillard going for 71 last night?
2: Uh, I was asleep when my son texted me. (laughs) (laughs) He said, he's so good, why hasn't he ever left Portland?
1: (laughs) So, I saw people on Twitter at halftime. He had 41 on 19 shots. And I was like, all right, I'm going to watch the second half of this game. And my thought was, they're playing the Rockets. They're up by 15. He better shoot every possession. He didn't shoot, like, the first five possessions of the third quarter. I was like, what are we doing? Just throw it up against the double team. That's what I'm here to watch. Unbelievable. 71. He did start shooting a lot in the fourth quarter, though. So, that was fun. It was great. It was great. What a game. It was uh, for Damian Lillard, who is phenomenal. It's uh, what is it? It's the eighth highest scoring game in NBA history, which is a remarkable number. All right. Joining us now is Evan Drellick from The Athletic. He uh, wrote the book Winning Fixes Everything. A look into the Houston Astros cheating scandal. Uh, Evan, before we get into your book, I got two things. First off. One of us hosting this show is an Astros fan. One of us is a Dodgers fan. I'll let you try to figure out which one is which. Um, So great, great book for us. Uh, But before we get into that, I did just want to ask, we've seen a weekend of spring training with a pitch clock. What do you think of the pitch clock through a few games in spring training?
3: I really hope it works. You might. Visually you, you see that gigantic clock sitting right back there, it's a little jarring. It's, you know, it's like does it have to be that large and right in your face? You do need it so that the pitcher can see it. But my overall stance on the rule changes is I think MLB had to do something. It's worth trying in a disaster scenario. You know, you can revert. Right? I mean it's you you can change it for the next year if you had to, but Look, the time, the game times are going well. And what do you guys think?
2: I like I it. I like it. I like the fact that it was like two <laughs> thirty.
1: Yeah, that we're getting two and a half yeah. hour games. I think there was a spring training game that was like two oh seven or something yeah. over the weekend. So I'm, I'm a fan of the pitch clock, and I. I'll get used to seeing the giant numbers on the screen, but I think it'll be great. I think it'll make the game actually better. I I do think my main question, though, is we both like baseball. I'm going to watch a lot of baseball during the summer, whether there's a pitch clock or not. Do you think it actually increases viewership? Like, are there going to be people who either didn't watch a lot of baseball or maybe watch some baseball, but not a ton? And they're like, oh, the games are 30 minutes shorter. I'm going to tune in more this season.
3: Well, you know what, I'll tell you what, I, I'm kind of an off-the-field reporter these days. I used to be a beat writer, right, covered the after. Actually, you can cover the Dodgers for a season. Wow. Of um, I don't watch a ton of baseball anymore. I think part of that is, A, I'm just on the phone all day talking to you know lawyers about baseball during the day, uh, and B, the product diminished. It, it, you know, just sitting there and waiting for the walk of the strikeout of the home run and then you know, him, Somebody hits a scorcher up the middle, and you know, there's three fielders right standing there. Uh, it's not, you know, I th- I think the whole premise of the thing that the the game, you know, needed more action is, is right, and and I found myself as a national baseball writer less interested in watching beyond the, the field, and some of that is just a function of my job, right? I'm a little weird in that in that regard, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it makes me a little more interested. Like, all right, you know, I mean, I live pretty close to City Field in New York. Um, the idea of now going out to the ballpark and maybe shaving 45 minutes off the time that, that I would spend at the ballpark to do it. I mean, even just sitting in the press box, like not just as a fan. Um, you know, it, it, yes, I, I think people will find it more attractive if it works right.
1: Evan Drellick with us again. He wrote the book, Winning Fixes Everything, um, that is out now. You can uh, order that on Amazon. One of the excerpts that we've seen that uh, I thought was interesting was uh, a member of the Red Sox from 2018 accused, not just the Dodgers, of having a scheme similar to what they were doing, but also that Major League Baseball uh, found out about the Dodgers doing it and ignored it. Um, how, I guess, how legitimate... Is that, that Major League Baseball might have found a team cheating and did not punish them during the World Series?
3: So, uh, you know, Jock Peterson's the player involved. And I'll tell the story here real quick. Uh, he actually gave comments the other day to, uh, I think it was KNBR. Um, so when he gave his side. He confirmed that this happened. His his whole explanation was, oh, I was just kidding. You know, you can choose whether, whether to believe <laughs> that or not. It's not impossible. I believe uh, it. But, <laughs> There you go. I guess I know who's Dodger is. So, um, so the story is this: uh, it's 2018 World Series. They're at Fenway. In the 2018 playoffs, is the first time MLB has, just, has realized. All right, we, you know this video room stuff's getting out of control. We, we've got to have people literally in the room. We've got to have a security monitor uh, in there, and and that's in each team's video room. So the story is. Jock Peterson runs into the visiting video room of Fenway, the Dodgers video room of Fenway and says, you know, Hey, do we have the signs yet? And, um, you know, the reaction in the room is like, you an idiot. You know, what are you like? What are you doing? And then apparently, uh, MLB security personnel, you know, some an official goes over to the other side, the Red Sox side, where a guy named JT walk into it, getting suspended with the Red Sox. Um, and that was actually with the Dodgers. um, they tell him, "Hey, don't don't be doing that stuff," and, and Watkins shoots back at the guy what you caught Chase Utley doing stuff. Um, so look, there are two buckets for people to understand when it comes to science healing um, allegation and confirmation. this is a This is somebody on an opposite team saying, "I think this happened, and here's the reason I think this happened. That is a different level of proof than uh, people on the inside saying, this happened, I know it happened, because I lived it and I did it. And that, that firsthand sourcing, the book has about the Dodgers in 17. Right? People on the inside of the Dodgers saying, yeah, we were doing a base runner system. Um, and it, that's that's what separated the original reporting Ken Rosenthal and I did, both on the Astros and the Red Sox, right? If you go back to 18, there were a lot of people saying, oh, I think this team's cheating, I think that team's cheating. Great, right? That's all allegations. Um, it's a difference, though, when you have people saying confirmed, yes, this happened, I did it. So, that anecdote about the 2018 uh, World Series from a Red Sox source about the Dodgers, it is an allegation. It is, it is not saying um, with absolute certainty we know exactly what happened. Uh, but that is certainly the perspective the Red Sox had on it. And, uh, you know, recently Jacques gave his perspective on it.
2: We know how egregious the Astros were. <laughs> Uh, yeah. How how much more so though than what you just talked about?
3: This is this is an interesting topic. I get asked about it a lot. Um, in general, in in the sport, and I, and I think even outside the sport, like we, we we look at degrees of severity with crimes and cheating. You know, I I keep going back to the speeding ticket analogy. It's imperfect, but you know. The Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Yankees, they were probably doing, I don't know, 90 in the 65. The Astros were doing like 120, 130. In general, most people would, would agree the Astros took it to a different level or several different levels above. Now, you can make a couple different arguments. You can argue that any cheating is cheating. I don't agree with it. There is an argument to be made there, and then you go down a rabbit hole of, well, okay, so then should sticky stuff be punished the same way that... You know, electronic sign stealing was. Um, and the other argument, kind of within that, is well, why do we look at that scheme as lesser? Um, and it, it's in part because MLB didn't want to deal with it. The problem had gotten so big, uh, or at least appeared big enough, that you know they they kind of like we're like, all right, we're not going to punish this, but if you're going really far, we're going to punish that. So you could argue that people should look worse at the. Uh, the base runner system than they do. But I still think at the end of the day, the, the stuff the Dodgers, Yankees, Red Sox are doing involved the base runner, right? You still had a guy in second base. He knew the code because they got it in the video room. The Astros eliminated the whole need for a runner entirely. The whole thing was off the field. You could communicate on any pitch as long as you knew the code, right? So I think the consensus is the Astros were... Uh, a cut above or several cuts above
1: two ideas from you one that major league baseball wasn't dealing with this at the time. And also the idea that you need somebody like on the inside, not just outside allegations, but somebody on the inside to talk about it. Where are we today? If Mike fires, never goes on the record and says anything.
3: So, so, and, and, and here's the, thing. you, you could get to a point of really confident confirmation if you don't have somebody on the inside, but you need, like, really strong evidence, right? You need video or, um, you know what I mean? Like, it's it certainly having the firsthand information is a, is a very strong way to do it. It's not the only way to do it. Um, so, you know, I, for years, as I was writing this book, I, I would see people talk about the story and, uh, that Ken Rosenthal and I broke originally and, you know, how this all comes out. And I think because Mike Fires was on the record there is a perception that the whole thing hinged on Mike Fires. That, you know, Mike Fires calls one of us up, Ken Roosevelt or I, you know, says, hey, Astros were cheating. Um, now, could that have been, like, theoretically possible? Sure. It's not actually what happened. What happened was, Ken and I were days away from publishing. I had first learned about the Astros cheating 13 months earlier. I, I was. Uh, a Red Sox reporter at that time, I get fired. I end up at the Athletic. 13 months later, Ken and I are are we are, we getting ready to go, but we're still trying to find more, and we're still still trying to find somebody, you know, who who would go on the record. We didn't even think we'd get somebody. So literally three days before publishing, Ken calls, fires, and I had heard his name before, and um, you know he was willing to talk, and and the. Having him on the record, having any story doesn't matter what you cover—news, sports doesn't matter. You want people on the record. Uh, it was going to be very unlikely we'd get somebody, but it was it positioned the story much better, right? You, you can't—it's—it's it's harder to shove aside when you when you have somebody on the record. I don't think the story is going to shove aside no matter what. Frankly, it was too detailed and too major. So Mike Fires is. He lends a, a on-record credibility to the story that is important uh, and should not be diminished. But you know that the, the kind of the perception that like the whole thing hinged on fires, I can tell you, the story was coming either way. It was literally days away from publishing. I'm so glad Mike Fires was willing to and had the courage to talk. Uh, but it is not as though Mike Fires decided, I'm going to blow the whole lid off the thing, and if I don't speak nobody else in the world is going to hear about.
1: Evan, before we let you go, uh, when will the Astros find a way to steal the frequency that PitchCom uses?
3: (laughs) You know, you, you, you joke. And and in general. (laughs) Um, look, not the Astros specifically in general, though, I mean, my point I would deliver to people is there will someday be another great (laughs) cheating scheme. Uh, whether we find out about it publicly or not, we'll see, you know, presumably someday there'll also be a scandal, meaning it's gone public, but you know, the it, that's even in the book. Is is you know people saying, well, you know, what's going to stop somebody from trying to hack into it, or if they do the automated ball strike system, you know the robo lumps. What about somebody hacking into that? You know, oh. people are always going to try to get an edge. It, and uh, those are extreme, and the the kind of in a way that would be really really nefarious, right? To to try to hack into something. Uh, but yeah, you know this is the crime of the whole thing. They've opened the door to the imagination. Well, what wouldn't they do? to And I mean they in general, baseball players, team. You know, what are people capable of? And clearly, if if somebody had told you five years ago what the the Astros are doing, you'd go, well, oh, that's pretty crazy. And no, people go to great lengths to get an edge.
2: Boy, he is evangelic. The, if they get into the robo, I'm sorry, I might give him a golf clap. <laughs> <laughs> if, they
1: can, if they can pull that you off. Deserve it at if that they, point. If they can pull that off. <laughs> he is evangelic from The Athletic again. Uh, his book, Winning Fixes Everything, is out now. Evan, we appreciate it. Thanks, Evan. Thanks, guys. Uh, so there is Evan Drellick, again, wrote the book, Winning Fixes. Everything, it's out on Amazon, uh, looks into the Astro sign ceiling, but also, as we've talked about Red plenty Sox, on this Dodgers, show, Red Sox and Yankees, Dodgers, and everybody pointing fingers. And I am Everyone very, who won. Basically, yeah. Well, here's the thing. I, we probably could have asked Evan this. I'm sure there are teams that cheated that did not win, but who cares if the Reds were stealing signs and won 75 games Great. like, ah, good job. You guys yeah. suck at that too. So if you win, it matters. All right. Coming up next here on ESPN Las Vegas, we'll jump into some UNLV basketball. 4,700. Clark comes oh off the god. screen.
0: She's got a look. Fires it. Got <laughs> it! it! Oh Caitlin Clark oh my for three! Oh my god! Oh. Oh my. What a finish. Oh, my God. They'll check to make sure, oh but it looked like it was there was good. plenty of time. It's got to be good. It's good, officially. Harks oh, my win. God. Holy cow. Clark. The most amazing three I've ever seen. What a finish. Holy Grainy and Bischoff are back on the press box.
1: That's from a top ten game on the women's side. Iowa knocked off number two Indiana as Caitlin Clark hit a three at the buzzer. There were a lot of buzzer threes over the weekend. There was. It was a great weekend of, of basketball. Weekend. Caitlin Clark, by the way, uh is going to be probably the second pick in the WNBA draft. I'm assuming Aaliyah Boston from South Carolina yeah, goes South first. Carolina, She's yeah. got, I think, the W or the, the NCAA record for double doubles yes. in a career. Uh, but Caitlin Clark is incredible. And I hope she comes to WNBA and shoots like she does in college, which is from anywhere at any moment. It's great. Um, All right. In UNLV basketball, UNLV beat Air Force one point. When EJ Harkless tipped in a game winning layup with under two seconds to play. Uh, It was an ugly game for UNLV and Air Force for a large portion of that game. There were more turnovers, then made shots. It was actually UNLV's least efficient offensive game of the season, and yet they won by a single point. Did we learn anything from that game? There's no such thing as a bad win.
2: You <laughs> Are you this. sure? Yes. Are you sure? Yes, I am sure. <laughs> there's no such thing as a bad win. Not, it does not exist. Are you sure? I'm absolutely confident that there's no such thing as a bad win. <laughs> because that That was does not painful. exist. That Might was... have been painful, but they
1: won the game. <laughs> they won the game. I think it was a bad win. If, can't have bad wins. If they were in the NCAA tournament conversation, you want them to tank? That would have been a bad win. Like, that would have hurt their oh, hurt their net ranking, hurt their Ken Palm because they were supposed to win by seven or eight uh, and they seven. won by one. I think the line was yeah. seven or eight. So that would have been a bad win because it would have hurt Metrically. their metrics. Right. Metrically, it would have been a bad win. But yeah, one. they won. They get to celebrate and all that. Yes, absolutely. They won by a point in the ugliest game of the season. They shot, by the way, three of 20 from three point range. Three so of made 20. the streak
2: is alive. You're just not looking at the positives
1: in this game. <laughs> streak is alive. So EJ Harkless in that game uh scored 19 second half points. UNLV as a team only had 29 in the second half. And he had the game winning tip in with two seconds left. We we use the phrase a lot about like putting a team on your back or carrying a team. That's one of the biggest like oh, he actually—he absolutely carried his team to a victory that I think I've ever seen. Like, uh, Bryce Hamilton probably did it a couple of times, but EJ Harkless was legitimately the only player that could do anything for UNLV offensively, and he just decided, all right, I'm going to drive to the rim on every possession of the second half.
2: Yeah, he's been, he's been terrific. I mean, we talked about last week, they're going to finish in a spot where it's probably going to be hard for him to win player of the year. They're just going to finish too low, and I don't think guys... Will vote for someone in that spot, but he's been as good as anyone in that league. And to see him do what he did the other night was uh, for them terrific. Um, if he he's could, gonna, be, he's gonna be
1: really hard to, he's gonna be really hard to replace. If he could shoot threes, he'd be yeah. so good. Being stopped, he both. was zero for six in this game right. from three point range. Like no, if he didn't shoot a three, he'd have been nine for eleven right. in that game. But he, he can't shoot. Like it's been a problem all year, and I think the. The bigger issue has become he still has the complete green light to shoot as many threes as he wants, which is he's shooting like 27% this year. That's not good. You don't want that guy with the green light. But he's been unbelievable. We talked about Mountain West Player of the Year, probably won't get it. He's a first-teamer, right? I think He has
2: to be a first-team all-conference all player.
1: He's going to finish top two or three it's in gonna scoring.
2: Be, man, that's going to be... We talked about it last week. There's just no player... If San Diego State's the best team and they're going to win the league, they've already clinched the uh, the tie for the league, and they get Wyoming on Saturday. So unless they completely blow it, they're going to they're going to win the league. And if they pick Bradley, I think it's more like okay, you're going to pick someone off the winning team. But it's just there's just no to me and to you, I think no obvious choice for this. Right. So is it obvious that a guy in the seventh and eighth place team is going to make first team All Conference? I think we both think he should. I'm never surprised at how votes come out. Yeah. Like it just never surprises me how
1: votes come out. So you, you I mean, can vote. The, no, the, the media here. There's a media the, poll. There's too. a media. There's yeah, a media yeah. vote
2: between. The two, I think between the two beat writers. Yeah, Andy and Mike. And, I and think, Mike. I think kind they of split combine. It. Yeah. yeah, they split it. You, you should just system.
1: you should just overrule them and say I'm voting. <laughs> say EJ Harkless is the player of the year. They might, <laughs> they might agree with that. They might agree with that. One other thing from that game that uh, has become an issue at Thomas and Mac Air Force got screwed by the clock in this game, and there were actually two times where the clock didn't start or froze and basically added more seconds to this game. First off, in the final minute, the clock froze at 59.7 seconds for like two to three seconds, and the possession went on, nobody caught it, whatever. The interesting part there is that the shot clock was running while the game clock froze. For a couple of seconds. but So that happened. And then the more egregious one is before... UNLV was down by four. Or excuse me, down by three. Three. And they rolled the ball up the floor. Keyshawn Gilbert is waiting to pick it up. And Keyshawn Gilbert taps the ball with his hand. And it didn't start. And then didn't pick it up for another second or so. And the referee is the one that signals when to start the clock. yes. And the ref didn't signal it, and I have no idea why. Because Gilbert, not only did he tap it, he changed the direction. Mm-hmm. Like, the ball's rolling up the floor. He taps it, and it's now rolling across So he can get sideways. it to his dribble hand. Yeah. And the guy for Air Force standing there, like, looks at the ref saying, what, start the clock. He touched it. And they didn't. So that's two instances that we're talking, you know, four seconds or something like that in total that should have been run off the clock. And if four seconds runs off the clock, there's obviously not time for EJ to tip in the game winning basket with 1.6 seconds left. So air force kind of got screwed there. Now, if that time runs off the clock, UNLV probably shoots a three on that second to last possession instead of getting a dunk because there's not enough time, whatever. But it's not the first time that's happened this year. Go back to UNLV's first loss of the season to San Francisco. San Francisco was inbounding with four seconds on the shot clock and on the inbound, San Francisco catches it, and the clock doesn't start for about two seconds. The shot clock doesn't. And San Francisco takes a three in the final second of the shot clock, and it goes in, and that was the game-winning basket, and San Francisco wins. If the shot clock starts on time, they don't have a game-winning basket. So that's twice this year. Right. That's twice this year that there has been a clock issue or clock malfunction based on the referee, you think? Because the other night, I think, was the referee. The Gilbert one was definitely the referee. The clock freezing in the final minute against Air Force, that's just a clock malfunction. The the clock just froze for two seconds, but the shot clock kept going. The one against San Francisco is weird because the game clock started, but the shot clock didn't. And I don't know if that's like a uh, operator error where they're supposed to hit the shot clock button, but I don't think so. I think you press one button. I think and it you have both. to
2: press one button
1: and it starts both. So I think that's just a clock malfunction, a technology malfunction. And it's now happened in two games that have come down to a shot being made in the final seconds to win it. That probably shouldn't have been allowed because clock should have been right. running earlier in the final minute. And this isn't like, Oh, it happened with 1730 left in the second half. This is in the final minute of the game. That everything happened. And if I remember correctly, was it two home games ago? Maybe three home games ago? We had like a seven or eight-minute delay because the clocks were frozen. Yes, And they had to reset everything. And like coming out of a timeout, nope, go back to your huddles. It was like a seven or eight-minute delay. It's kind of a big deal. I mean, obviously, it's where you play your home games, but the Mountain West tournament's coming here in a week, and the clocks might not work. So it's kind of an issue, I think, for UNO, for... For anybody at this, I point. guess not necessarily for UNLV, but no for the Thomas, Thomas and Mack and who's ever playing there, because how reliable is the clock when you have a one possession game and there's 30 <laughs> seconds left? And Does this you don't have anything to do start. with the big scoreboard? No, it's always the ones on the basket. <laughs> it's the ones on the basket that are broken. And my favorite part in basketball is when the sh- when the shot clock doesn't work and they bring out that one and set it on the floor next to yes. it and make you go that way. So clocks don't always work at Thomas and Mack. Maybe maybe UNLV can win a Mountain West tournament by. Uh, Screwing with the clocks a little to help them out. Coming up next year on ESPN Las Vegas, we'll get into some baseball as the pitch clock is here. But first, we got tickets to give away two tickets to go see Bonnie Raitt. She's performing March 15th, 17th, and 18th at the Venetian Theater, and we've got a pair of tickets for you. 702-364-1100 is the phone number. If you want to go see Bonnie Raitt, be caller number 4 at 702-364-1100.
0: Dame's got it across the logo, goes behind his back. Dame attacks, dribbles, drives to the rim, floats it up. It's through! 41 and a half for Damian Lillard. 1.7 left in the second quarter. Knicks from three-quarters court on the way. No good. Damian Lillard, one of the most impressive first halves you will ever see. 41 points on 13 of 19 shooting. Back to the Finley Toyota Studios for Granny and Bischoff on the press box.
1: And how much baseball have you watched spring training with the pitch clock? Three or four, uh, Previous or replace. Replace. Did yeah. you see Red Sox Braves? Ninth inning, bases yes. loaded, two outs, full count. Yes. And the inning was ended because the batter violated the pitch clock. Didn't have a, both feet in? You got to be in the box, both feet, yeah. with eight seconds left eight, on the pitch yeah. clock if you're the batter. Also, the catcher has to be in his catcher's box, whatever the hell they call that. Uh, with eight seconds left as well. There have been a... I saw one where a catcher got called for a violation for not being in the box.
2: Are these guys going to be able to readjust the gloves as much as they did in the past? Boy, they
1: love doing that. Every pitch. uh, Kyle Tucker, who plays for the Astros, played in a spring training game yesterday, and after every pitch, he steps out of the box, places his bat against his waist. He doesn't wear batting gloves. Bends down, rubs his hand in the dirt, rubs his hands, gets in the box, adjusts his belt, and is ready to go. He does that after every pitch. He still did it in the spring training game. He just sped everything up. Did it really fast? Yeah. So he's just doing it really, really fast, and then getting in the box. And he had a single in his first at bat after doing that. He did afterwards say it's way too fast. He's like, I. He's like, I'm up there and I can't even think about what the guy's going to throw me because he's you have pitching to do already. A bunch of dumb right. Stuff. So <laughs> I love the pitch clock. There. So do I. I I, I, I think just, this is phenomenal I think it's awesome because you there, there's two things the length of game being shortened is good right mm-hmm. we've seen most spring training games come in around 230 there was one that was 207 which is hilariously quick but most are coming in around 230 the average mlb game last year was like 307 or something like that so you're cutting about a half hour off the game but the other part that's good is the actual gameplay you're not sitting around waiting for something to happen. You're actually, oh, he's pitching again. Oh, he's pitching again. Right? right? Like, the game right. is actually happening over and over and over again. There's not massive delays, delays which makes it more entertaining because, again, you're not sitting more there action. watching guys do nothing, right. playing with their belts or whatever. So I love the pitch clock. I do, too. I, maybe I shouldn't be, but I'm stunned how many people I've seen on Twitter that don't like it.
2: Get off my lawn.
1: It's what it is, yeah. It's people who are like, ah, oh, there shouldn't be a clock in baseball, and this isn't real baseball and all that. And I'm like, eh,
2: I don't know if it's real baseball, but it's 2.35 right. for a game, so that's all I care about. <laughs> Early, earlier to bed at night.
1: So The Dodgers. Yeah, that's right. You got late night games. I got late night game. games, man. That was actually during the spring training game of the Astros that I was watching the Astros announcers are like, we're not going to have games go past midnight in, in central time zone because the Astros in the ALS play almost all their divisional games in the Pacific time zone despite being right. two hours ahead. And they're like, our viewers aren't going to have to stay up past midnight to watch games. We'll be, be great. Done. We'll be done early. Yeah. So big fan of the pitch clock. I think it's going to be great. And the other key here is everyone's going to adjust to this. Well, this like they
2: adjust to everything over time. Right. This isn't... We're,
1: Yes, there are going to be batters called out because of a pitch clock violation in July and August and September, but it's not going to be a massive problem. Guys are going to get used to it. We're going to have an occasional, you know, screw up, but it's not going to be where every game there's multiple violations and, you know, it's just, it's a ball or a strike. And if you have one to start an at-bat, not as big of a deal. If you have one to end an at-bat, it's a pretty big deal, but... I think guys will get used to it, and I think ultimately it will be better. I've seen a lot of people mentioning, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s, baseball games were routinely two and a half hours. That This isn't new. Like, baseball games lasting over three hours on average didn't start until the mid-2000s. And we've had 15 years of that, and now it's like, hey, hurry up, guys. Stop slowing down.
2: We'll see the clock so we can tell if they're in the box or not. But I'm wondering, like, what happened uh, uh, with the Braves and Red Sox? How if let's say it's let's say it's Dodgers, Astros, and it's top of the ninth in a tie game, how much leeway an ump will give a guy?
1: That's what I'm curious to see. Like, will they really stand strong (laughs) on this with like the last strike? I think so. Spring training, obviously. I think they should They're be as harsh. Tr- I do, too. you got to get them as, in the mode of this is what it's like. There should be a damn buzzer that goes yes, off. exactly. <laughs> to get them in the mode. Right. Once we get into the regular season, I would guess it's going to be treated the same way the play clock is treated in the NFL, where we routinely see It hits zero, snaps and they taken. Haven't snapped. Right, and then we hear the... the damn rules official come in and say, well, the mechanic, it takes the referee so long to look at the clock, and then then the ball, ball. and then he counts to seven, and if the ball's snapped, it's good. It's so stupid, but I think we're going to see that. If the batter is a second late, if if he is almost in the box, and there's eight seconds left, I don't think we're going to see that called later in the season. If the pitcher has starts is the pitcher is starting his motion and the clock has already hit zero, but just hit zero. I don't think we're going to see a lot of violations. I do think, I think we end up seeing more violations on hitters than pitchers, right? Yeah. To get in by eight. Yeah. Because the pitcher can see
2: the pitcher can see in terms of when he has to start his windup. Right. And I agree with you in terms of it hits zero. There's going to be a lot where they just won't stop it as much. You don't want them stopping at every pitch. Right. No, I think yeah. the hitters. I think the hitters are going to get dinged more than the pitchers.
1: Yeah. So pitch clock is good. Two people that like baseball. I, I, I really love enjoy it. That. I do wonder. I'm not convinced that people who don't watch a lot of baseball are now suddenly going to start watching baseball. Maybe it makes it easier to go to a game because hey, it's a two and a half hour time commitment, not a three, three or and three nine. and a half hour. But I don't think it's going to drastically improve viewership.